This is Archive Atlanta, episode 116, Better Homes Movement. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. This has been an exciting week for me. I had a little feature on a local CBS station in Atlanta, and it was so much fun to do. I'm going to put a link to the video in the show notes if anybody like to see it. And I bring it up not just for, you know, blatant self-promotion, um, but because the reporter and I went to visit two of the homes that I will talk about today so you can see them on video. Uh, and I've had this topic about the Better Homes movement on my list forever, and I have been equally excited to learn about it as I am to share it. I think it's safe to say that everyone in America today has been programmed with the idea that home ownership is one of, if not the tenet of the American dream. But did you know the idea didn't really come around till the 1920s? And to sell Americans on this idea, a federal program was created, which then supported marketing campaigns in thousands of U.S. cities. This week, we're talking about the Better Homes movement, what it was, who started it, and then we're going to get into the Better Homes Week, which was a seven-day open house event held all over the country, Atlanta included. Our city was so enthused by the idea, we even spawned our own separate tour. And the best part is that so many of these model homes are still standing today, and I'm going to tell you where to find them. To understand the Better Homes movement, we need to go back to World War I. Just like I talked about in the overalls episode, when World War I ended in 1918, Federal Reserve policies had been responsible for inflation that doubled price levels. The government had been controlling many businesses during wartime, then suddenly released it, coupled with people rushing to buy goods that had been rationed, and we have rapid inflation, 15% from 1919 to 1920. The housing industry was also part of this chaos. Until World War I, builders in most American cities constructed housing for almost all kinds of working families, even those we would consider low income today. But during the war, they cut back on construction for worker housing because rising costs had made this unprofitable. Coupled with other factors like the Great Migration, the end of World War I leaves most cities with a huge housing shortage. Today we think of home ownership as the pinnacle of the American dream, but this was not the case prior to the 1920s. In 1917, the National Association of Real Estate Boards launched a Own Your Own Home campaign, and this was later taken over by the U.S. Department of Labor, becoming the first federally funded program to encourage home ownership. In March of 1921, Herbert Hoover was named Secretary of Commerce, and one of his main platforms was the family home. He thought that better housing would generate more family time, more leisure, spirituality, volunteerism. But, you know, I just told you there's a housing shortage. So within his first month on the job, he created the Division of Construction and Housing, a new office that would promote cooperation of the building industry. He wanted to standardize building codes and construction materials and improve access to funding. So the goal here was to significantly reduce the housing shortage by the next year. We also have to talk about the changing role of women and the larger society in general. During the war years, women had joined the workforce in record numbers. We also have the rise of the automobile, so you have women driving cars, which some people thought was very radical. And while the 20s we remember it as fun and celebratory, you have to remember there was also the decade of nativism, eugenics, and the basic backlash to the rise in immigration. So all of this created a push to return to what was thought of kind of the quote-unquote right way to do a society. Think of it a little bit like a Make America Great Again of the 1920s which was women at home, 
being rulers of their domestic domain, and retaining this traditional white American family structure. But it wasn't just a wish. It was woven into government-run and backed programs. The Delineator was a woman's magazine that started in 1869. By the late teens, it had a circulation of over one million female readers. Its editor, Mary Maloney, created the Better Homes movement in 1922. She was inspired by President Warren Harding, who, after visiting a model home in Dayton, Ohio, said that he wished other cities would do something similar. Maloney's idea was to have cities and towns across the country have a, quote, demonstration week, end quote, which would show off the model home, but also the interior decor, the design, the technology, the furniture. She got Harding's endorsement along with 28 state governors, and she established a national advisory council with Coolidge as honorary head and Hoover as chairman. The Commerce Department got involved, and by 1922, Demonstration Week was happening in over 1,000 cities and towns. By 1923, home construction jumped to 44% of total construction, up from 22% in 1920. So what about Atlanta? If you read Leanne Land's book, uh, she goes into detail about this, but I'm going to share one specific statistic. In 1907, only 19-25% to of the city's homes were owned outright, or under mortgage, compared to 40% nationwide. We just weren't a big home ownership city. And if you love our historic apartment stock as much as I do, you'll notice that they were almost all built in the late teens, early 20s, late 20s. So renting was still king at this time. In 1922, President Harding and Secretary Hoover kicked off the first official Better Homes Week. And it all centered around the 100th anniversary of John Howard Payne's song, Home Sweet Home. They even built a replica of Payne's Long Island home on the lawn of the White House, which more than a million people came to D.C. to see. This first national event happened in about a thousand cities across the country, which I said, like I said earlier, but Atlanta was not in that first lineup. Instead, they would join in 1923. And like all things self-promotional and laced with advertising, Atlanta went hard. The Atlanta City Auditorium held an Own Your Own Home show from April 9th to the 14th, put on by the Atlanta Real Estate Board. Aside from learning the latest in-home decor trends like the Davenport bed, there was also information about home mortgages and financing. And this was the decade when loans became socially acceptable and consumer credit. And the idea was that consumer desirables became to be seen as assets. And you'll quickly notice that the Better Homes events were like real-time, real-life commercials, both for products, decor, appliances, but really for this American dream and then how to be a model citizen. Atlanta's first Better Homes Week was June 4th through June 10th of 1923, and Mrs. Newton Wing, chairman of the Home Economics Club Department of the Atlanta Women's Club, which I talked about in episode 11, she was appointed the Better Homes Week chairman for the state of Georgia. So her job was to appoint and equip all of the model homes and then organize all of the presentations and all the talks. Basically, she had to put on this entire event that they gave her, oh, three weeks notice to do. So with no time to get this house secured and furnished, she's sending out frantic letters to vendors. Almost immediately, a house was chosen at 57 Orm Circle in Boulevard Park. It was owned by a Mrs. Davis or Mrs. Davies. It changes from article to article. But in one, I read that it was planned and built by Clara Bovard, who happened to be an early female attorney in Atlanta at the time. The house was chosen because it was near Piedmont Park and the New Boys High, which today is at the former Grady High School, which was just renamed Midtown High School. Described as a seven-room bungalow, it had a living room, porch, dining room, adult's bedroom, and young daughter's bedroom. 
The marketing machine starts to churn with local prominent women publishing op-eds in the paper about, you know, keeping a nice home, how you need to do so, how great it is. There are Better Homes related sermons in all the churches that week. Um, there's a man named Mr. Moriarty. He's in charge of the groundskeeping at the house. Haverty's Furniture outfits the entire house. Uh, Tommy Dora Baker, she was an Atlanta librarian. She chooses all of the books in the home. The local Boy Scouts worked crowd control, but they also acted like little live models to showcase the backyard playground equipment. So before you ask, I did not figure out where this house is today. From what I can tell, this was a brand new construction. It had not been lived in yet. It was donated for the event. So while Orm Circle is still a street near Piedmont Park, I feel strongly that this house exists. I'm just unable to pinpoint which one it is exactly. So if anybody out there knows, shoot me an email. The press did give explicit directions for most of these people, and because most of them were taking the trolley line, they just told them, you know, get off the last stop at Orm Circle, and it's right there. Inside the house, there'd be a person whose sole job was to give you the budget number so that you too could have a home like this. And by the time the exhibit came to a close on June 10th, 6,000 people had been inside. Months later, Atlanta is awarded the third prize by the National Better Homes Committee, and the planning for 1924's event begins almost immediately. Again, in true Atlanta fashion, we have to be a little extra. We end up establishing two events for the next year. So what happens is there's a national event called the Better Homes Week. It's still being organized for the U.S. for a week in April, but the city of Atlanta wanted to do an extra event in March. And at first, they keep the name. I assume there was some kind of certified cease and desist letter that came from Washington because we quickly changed the March event's name to Home Beautiful, and it would be sponsored by the Atlanta Constitution newspaper. So just keep this in mind. If you ever research or read about it, it's really easy to confuse the two things. I mean, it technically was the same exact event, but some were called Home Beautiful and then some were for Better Homes Week. So from March 30th to April 6th of 1924, three homes will be open to the public every day from 1 p.m. until 10 p.m. for Home Beautiful. House number one was built by Joseph Shaw and loaned by Mr. Smith and Rankin. It's located on Morningside Drive, just off Piedmont, and it cost $22,500 to build. This was the most expensive of the three houses, and it was outfitted with a Chesterfield sofa, Persian rugs, a music room, a master bedroom, matching twin beds, just like I Love Lucy, and there was a nursery. Now, Hudson and Essex Auto Companies, which were local car companies, loaned out their vehicles to be placed in each driveway's home. And guess what? This is still standing. The address today is 626 East Morningside. Um, it's one of the houses that we I took the reporter to see on the news. Now, they did add a porch at some point in the last century, uh, but it's otherwise identical. House number two was built by H.W. Nichols, and it was loaned by Adair Realty and Trust. It cost about almost $10,000 to build, and it's described as being on the corner of Jackson and 6th Street in Glendale Terrace. That house is also still there, although due to street name changes, it's currently 792 Charles Allen Drive. House number three was way out on Sylvan Road in Capitol View. So it was a newly annexed neighborhood, if you listen to the Capitol View episode, and this was built and loaned by W.D. Beatty. Now it was only $5,700. So this was kind of like the budget option for people. You know, it was like if you wanted to be really wealthy, you'd go to the Morningside house. Um, if you had a smaller budget, you can go out to Capitol View. And this had a nice living room. It had velour furniture in it. There was walnut wood in the dining room, and the bedroom had French walnut. 35,000 Atlantans visit the home within the first few days, more than 18,000 in Morningside, almost 12,000 went to Midtown, and over 5,000 went to Capitol View. The city also decides that this event was going to stay open for one more day, April 7th, which would be open for Black Atlantans to visit. 
You know, it can't be a story about Atlanta without some Jim Crow. By the end of the event, 140,000 people, black and white, had visited the three model homes. Home number one in Morningside was so popular that it stayed open for an extra week after the show ended. The city now had a month to get ready for the National Better Homes Week that would take place from May 11th to the 18th. This was once again being led and organized by Mrs. Wing, and she secured three homes, two for white residents and one for black. Although I did not find confirmation of this theory, I 100% believe that this was either a direction from the federal government or it was because the previous year's first prize winner had a home for black people and Atlanta wanted that trophy. I do not put both those theories past the city. House number one was on Virginia Avenue. It was owned and donated by Mr. and Mrs. Hardy. And the idea here was to showcase a home that would require an income twice the cost of the house. House number two was on Dill Avenue, donated by Dr. and Mrs. Charles Currens. And house number three was on B Street, just off West Hunter Street, near the brand new Booker T. Washington High School. This last home, the one for African Americans, was being constructed by Service Engineering and Construction. And really, the entire neighborhood of Ashview Heights is being constructed this time. So I learned that B Street is a common moniker for a street that is new or in the midst of development. And so this would later be changed to Newcastle, which is a street here today. The Black Model Home had its own committee. It was led by Mrs. Hope and Mrs. Charles Johnson. Because the Constitution was the paper providing the news, the only thing we know about this model home was that it was, quote, furnished simply in accordance with small wage of the Negro worker and is arranged so as to provide light, sanitation, and convenience in the hope that members of that race may be imbued, end quote. It was a five-room cottage, white with green trim. Of course, all of the new modern technology and appliances went into the white homes. And from the view of the white press, the house here was simply to show the black community how to keep a neat and sanitary home. And yes, I have walked this block up and down, attempting to see if this house is still there. And the short answer is, I don't know. There is no longer a white house with a green trim. And so another history mystery to add to the list. At the end of this Better Homes Week, 150,000 people had visited these houses. Atlanta won second prize national award, along with $200 of prize money. By the fall, there was a nationwide demand for copies of the Better Homes Week booklet that Atlanta had created for their attendees. Other cities wanted to copy it. As I'm sure you guessed, by 1925, Atlanta had their eyes set on that first prize title. Architect P. Thornton Mary, or Mayor, I never know how to say this. So he's appointed as overseeing architect of all three homes. So they're all being built for this event. House number one was on a forest road in Linwood, owned by J.H. Smith and built by Minter Homes and designed in the colonial style. I did some research on where this would have been, and it looks like we lost it to the highway demolition that is now Freedom Park and Freedom Parkway. House number two was an apartment at 159 Pullman Street, which was loaned by Mrs. G.L. Wentworth. And house number three was, again, a quote-unquote Negro house, and they put that at 248 Courier Street between Jackson and Summit Avenues. This was purchased from Miss Frank Taylor, who was a schoolteacher, and it was going to be built by W.C. Carson. So I'm not sure if she owned the lot. Now, just like last year, there is a separate committee organized by the Neighborhood Union that would lead the efforts for the African-American home. The week-long event began with a movie about Better Homes showing at the Howard Theater. There was an Atlanta Humane Society pet parade at house number one, and both Spellman and Girls High gave public demonstrations, like kind of like 
domestic demonstrations. And all in all, the whole thing was, was a success. Atlanta finally won the coveted national first prize. And just like the prior year, the city also had a home beautiful show, with four of the seven homes were in the brand new Avondale Estates. By 1926, the event's grandeur starts to die down just a little bit. There are only two homes on the tour that year. House number one was on Brookridge Drive, and it was considered a quote-unquote budget bungalow. Two bedrooms, one bath. And it faced Orm Park. A.J. Orm donated the lot. This house is no longer standing. I actually found out uh, from a previous owner that it has since been demolished and replaced with a much larger home. House number two was on Kelly Street near Fair Street. So Fair Street today is Memorial Drive. And it already existed, but it was being remodeled for this event. Organizers called this home the quote-unquote happy house. And I cannot tell if any of the houses on Kelly are this one or if there's new development across the street. It might have been demolished for that. The remainder of the models in this year were three school practice apartments. So very small kind of model apartments that students I'm assuming female students, uh, would play house in. Nonetheless, Atlanta won third prize again. This is the same year where other neighborhoods, most notably Kirkwood, participated in their own little unauthorized Better Homes events. Organized by the Kirkwood Civic Leagues, they had a winner at 11 Sutherland Drive. Before you come to me to explain that Sutherland is in Lake Clare, I will be explaining this massively confusing history in an upcoming Kirkwood episode. Now, Kirkwood did have an official home listed in the 1927 Better Homes Week, and that was at 57 Howard Street, which is also still there today. The same year that there was a house at 891 Vendado Way, which is also still standing. So again, at this point, the events were still popular, but not as popular as 1923 and 1924. In October of 1927, the Atlanta Constitution began sponsoring more home construction, and so they built a model house at 705 East Morningside. This is just a few hundred feet down from house number one in 1923, and it was a big publicity event. It was designed by R. Kennan Perry, and Mayor Ragsdale comes to the Cornerstone Lane ceremony and throws a huge barbecue. And this house is also still there, and it's one of the houses um, that I showed the reporter. By 1929, although this event is still under the direction of Mrs. Wing, it stopped being a tour of homes and more like a submission contest, so people could nominate their own private residence, but nothing was open to the public. So there you have it, the story of the Better Homes movement, its arrival in Atlanta with Better Homes Week, and then how we spawned into the Home Beautiful show. At the very least, I hope this gets you to think a little bit deeper about the houses you may pass every day. When were they built? Why? Who lived in them? You never know what kind of amazing history those walls have to share. Thank you everyone for listening. If you love the podcast, please take a minute to leave a rating and or review. You can also visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. I hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.